Welcome back, warriors. Tanse Sego Ani Buju, Quay Nin Deluisi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty on Turtle Island. And today, we are so incredibly lucky to be speaking with David Wilkins. He is a professor of leadership and Native studies at the University of Richmond, and he has literally been front and center to help educate the broader Native community in the United States about the dangers of tribal disenrollment. And I actually got a chance to hear him speak a few times. And one time I heard him speak in person at a conference we attended on tribal disenrollment at the Pueblo of Laguna. And he was incredible. Literally, everyone was so focused on what he was saying, you could hear a pin drop. And he's also the published author of Dismembered, Native Disenrollment and the Battle for Human Rights, published by the University of Washington Press, which he co-wrote with Shelley Wilkins. I'm truly honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking this time. Welcome to the show, David Wilkins. Thank you very much, Pam. Pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm just so excited. And I know all of the listeners are just going to hang on everything you have to say. And I'm wondering, for some of those um, up here north of the artificial border, um, if you'd like to introduce yourself the way you like to, maybe where you're from or your community background, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I belong to the Lumbee Nation of North Carolina. Um, uh, We're about 60,000 strong uh, citizens. So we're the largest non-recognized uh, indigenous uh, nation in the United States. Uh, we sort of have a quasi-recognized status because Congress actually enacted a law in 1956 that formally recognized us, but the 1950s was the termination period. And so at the request of Western tribes and BIA officials, they decided um, they were not going to provide any benefits or services to the Lumbee people. Um, and so we were acknowledged as a tribal nation and yet denied benefits and services that other recognized tribes received. Um, and interesting enough, in the 1980s, um, the Solicitor General for the Department of Interior analyzed that uh, our recognition law in 56 and declared that we had been terminated um, at the same time as we had been recognized. And I would tell my students that only a federal official could both recognize and terminize <laughs> a tribe with one piece of legislation. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing is unbelievable in the whole colonization project, but right. honestly, that, that's got to be right up there with it really is. It really being is. recognized and terminated <laughs> at the same time. Um, so... I mean, where do things stand now with your Lumbee Nation? Um, uh, are they, you know, advocating for a, a different kind of recognition, or? Yeah. Well, they've been pursuing. They've been trying to get that clause stricken from the, the Lumbee Bill since the 1950s, actually. Bindeloria, um, the most prominent Native um, um, philosopher, was an active su- supporter of us. Um, um, and we've had lots of allies over the years. 
their bills currently pending on. And uh, each time there's been someone typically on the Senate side that has rejected and not supported our bill, largely in part because they are close allies with the Eastern Band of Cherokee, who have always been opposed to lender recognition for reasons that I won't go into today. Um, but suffice it to say that the federal government has things set up in such a way um, um, so that you have certain tribes aligned against other tribes and it benefits them, means helps them maintain a certain relationship with the federal government. So it's part of that sort of, you know, um, crab in a bucket mentality. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. Um, but I think, and the sense is that it, the tribe will eventually receive full recognition. Um, um, but things, certain things have to line up politically and they're not quite there yet, especially now with, uh, with the Trump administration in power. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's another whole 10,000 shows in and of itself, the Trump administration. Um, Well, I mean, the, the, you know, of the listeners that I have on this podcast and across my social media, there's a lot of native activists and, you know, not a lot of allies and supporters. So, you know, if there's ever anything you need, any, you know, help with advocacy or whatever, you just, just let me know because, um, you know, uh, colonization has had a devastating impact on our nations and tribes and First Nations all over Turtle Island. And appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, today we're we're talking about um, <clears throat> tribal disenrollment, and that terminology isn't used uh, up here in what's now known as Canada, the northern part of Turtle Island. And I'm wondering if you can explain it, because I have an audience both in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, like what is tribal disenrollment and how is it impacting, you know, both tribal governments and individual citizens? Mm-hmm. Well, the concept of enrollment um, dates back to the allotment era uh, when the federal government decided they wanted to downsize our um, our land base by individualizing um the communal lands that were held by native nations. Um, and so the federal government created roles. Um, and so the BIA would send and have officials come into reservation communities or superintendent or the local agent um, would encourage tribal members to sign up and get enrolled in the tribe so they could then be eligible for an allotment and benefits that they were entitled to, uh, whether it was based on treaties or some gratuitous, um, you know, gift from the federal government or whatever. Uh, And then, so when John Collier becomes Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1934, um, and he creates, um, you know, a situation, so trying to stop the enrollment, I mean, trying to stop the allotment policy, um, the idea that tribes could finally now have a greater control of their own enrollment um, uh, uh, criteria and determine who belonged to their nations. Um, and so Collier, of course, used the term membership to describe that. Um, and so when I've been researching this issue over the years, and I've been studying tribal issues of membership and citizenship dating back to the early 90s, um, and the word member in the 1930s, and if you think about it, we talk about, I'm a member of a certain family, right? Uh, so member has an organic connotation, and it was even stronger in the 1930s. Um, because frequently, I hear people say that tribal membership is a terrible term 
because tribes aren't clubs, they're not social organizations, they're not fraternities or sororities, and certainly they're not that, but the word has that older meaning of member, and that's why the title of our book, uh, I intentionally chose the term dismemberment, because if you have a, if you lose an arm in an accident, or if you lose a finger, you've been dismembered, right? Mm-hmm. And so I always understood, uh, and I think most indigenous peoples understand that a native nation really is an extended family network, right? We are all related, as Vine Deloria used to like to say. Uh, and so we are all members of an indigenous family. And so when I understood membership from that context, it made more sense to me. And so the word dismember, when tribes decide to, to terminate the political and cultural and legal rights of a citizen in their nation, they are in effect lopping off a part of their extended body. Um, and so I think it's a more accurate term. It's a, it's a harsh term. And my editor at um, University of Washington Press initially tried to dissuade me from using the term dismember, thinking that it was too gory. I said, and I insisted, no, I said, we're gonna keep the term because that's precisely what we're doing to ourselves by, so disenrollment is more of a euphemistic term I prefer the term dismemberment because we are truly cannibalizing ourselves when we take actions to cast out, whether it's through disenrollment, which is a formal political and legal termination of a citizen, or to banish, which is a formal physical uh, or social exclusion uh, or expulsion of, of, a, of, a, of a citizen. Uh, in either case, that person has been dismembered because they are no longer part of the body politic of their nation. And historically, there is nothing more sacred than to be a body, to be a part of that body politic, uh, whether it was Lakota or Anishinaabe or Lumbi or, or whatever. Wow. I mean, it just, I, I have to agree with you that the title is is really appropriate. And I know sometimes, you know, whether it be universities or, you know, conferences, they're a little worried about harsh terminology, but I don't think there was anything harsher than colonization itself. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's in fact genocide. And I think sometimes you have to put words that reflect the actual impacts. It's a Mm -hmm. harsh term because there's harsh impacts. Um, Now, in Canada, for First Nations, we use the term, for the most part, band membership or First Nation membership. Mm-hmm. Um, some t- there's a little bit of a move to get away from that. People want to call it something else for some mm-hmm. many of the same reasons that you uh, talked about. And, and, you know, I myself have considered all of those things. Now, we were talking to Gabe um, Galanda a couple weeks ago about tribal disenrollment. Mm-hmm. And he he taught me something that I didn't realize was the case. And maybe you can explain it a little better. Because here in Canada, First Nations say they have membership and you're the member of a, a First Nation. Mm-hmm. You, you can't be just kicked out as a member. Whereas mm-hmm. tribal disenrollment or tribal dismemberment, am I understanding it correctly that... You can be a member or or a citizen and actually be kicked out despite the fact that you're already a citizen. Correct. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? It just happens because tribal nations um, over the course of the last century and a quarter uh, have been recognized by the federal government as the final arbiters of who belongs in their community. And of course, the federal government 
has empowered itself through the doctrine of plenary power so they can override the tribal nation's membership decisions, but they only do that at certain times when it's when it benefits the BIA or it benefits some federal agency. And since the self-determination era of the 1970s, the federal government and the BIA have been reluctant to intervene in inter what they consider internal tribal matters involving tribal membership. Uh, if you go back to the 1890s and the 1880s in, in the one of the early chapters in Shelley and I, in my book, is we examine lots of federal court cases uh, in which the federal government acknowledged as early as 1896 that tribal nations had the power to disenroll. But what they were talking about at that time was the power to disenroll white men who had married into tribal nations. And so tribes were doing that in Oklahoma left and right because a lot of white men married native women in what was in Oklahoma territory um, because they wanted to gain access to the lands and resources and oil that were uh, abundant uh, uh, on many of those in many of those communities in Oklahoma. And yet, of course, those individuals sometimes try to take over the tribal nation uh, and the tribe would then say, we're going to kick you out and they would disenroll them. They would denationalize them. And those whites then filed lawsuits claiming that the tribe didn't have the right to do that, to terminate their tribal membership. <laughs> and yet the Supreme Court in a number of cases said, yes, they do. The tribal nation is the final arbiter and has the power to detribalize, to denationalize anyone. Um, because it wasn't really until the 1950s that I can find evidence through the record where tribes began to actually disenroll their own members. Because if you go back to the 1930s, I went through, I've been collecting tribal constitutions and tribal governing documents for years, and I've got a lengthy database now of over 500 organic documents of tribal governments. Um, most of those early BIA constitutions, and even many of the later ones, acknowledge that tribes do have the power, uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to deny admittance of people from outside. They have the power uh, to control membership, but there's never, there's no discussion whatsoever of the power to, and they talk about the power to, to kick out non-Indians or to not allow non-Indians to come into the community. Um, because, but it wasn't until the 1950s that I found a situation in which one nation, the Northern Ute, declared uh, they were facing termination and part of the Ute community wanted to be terminated because they felt that it would free them from federal domination and oppression. The other segment of the tribe did not want to be terminated. They wanted to maintain their relationship with the federal government. And so one of the segments gained power and set about disenrolling other Ute members. That, and that was the earliest uh, instance I found of a tribal nation attempting to disenroll its own members. Um, and that was it until the 19, uh, early 1990s, around 1991, when I began uh, to see newspaper clips of tribes who were deciding to banish certain individuals. They weren't talking about disenrollment. It was always banishment and almost always in relation to crime or to violence uh, or, or to, or to uh, some kind of you know, criminal offense. Um, and so I started keeping a record of, of these moments, and these were all early banishment cases in which individuals would be told 
to leave and not come back. Um, but it wasn't until the mid-1990s that I started seeing the term disenrollment come about. And mostly that was in California with some of the gaming tribes. And so really you have a situation by the mid-90s in which tribes, when they were facing individuals who were committing crimes or gang activity or political treason, they would decide to banish an individual. Um, but as gaming took off um, and as per capita payments became a dominant form of resource distribution of monies, I started seeing more cases of disenrollment. Uh, and so it seems to, to work out that tribes that want to deal with criminals would use banishment as a form of physical exclusion, physical expulsion. Tribes that want to politically or legally terminate a member or citizen's right use the term disenrollment. Um, and yet those two concepts frequently get conflated in the public's mind, but they're very distinctive terms. Um, and yet some tribes engage in both banishment and disenrollment of an individual. Because typically if you're banished, you're not disenrolled, you're still a tribal member. Uh, and if you go away and mend your ways and agree to certain sanctions, the tribe will allow you to come back in and you can be re, re allowed to, you know, reintegrate into the community. But when you're politically and legally terminated um, and the tribal government or the tribal court passes an act or a decision that says so, you have been effectively terminated uh, as a citizen or a member of your nation. And there is no coming back from that. Uh, and what's even more bizarre is that the federal courts have allowed, on occasion, banished individuals to challenge their banishment in federal court, but they have not yet allowed a disenrolled member to challenge his or her banish, his or her termination in federal court. So, and disenrollment is clearly a much more devastating process, right? because you literally lose your identity as a tribal citizen. Whereas with banishment, you're essentially excluded, right? You don't lose uh, anything other than the right to live within tribal territory, which is bad, but you can still come back after a period of time, typically. So the federal courts have it completely backwards in terms of providing any sense of due process uh, to tribal people's individuals who are facing disenrollment. Wow. I mean, that's, it, 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 you know, it seems unbelievable given, you know, the gravity of the impact, you know, so mm -hmm. when you're weighing, you know, what you should review and what you shouldn't, it seems like disenrollment is, is the most extreme kind of impact because I know right. here in Canada, our first nations, um, some first nations, um, have a form of banishment. It's it's called being BCR'd. So they mm. pass a banned council resolution, which is just a formal decision by the First Nation to remove, say, a drug dealer from the community. And they're not allowed to come back until they stop dealing drugs, they mm -hmm. meet with the elders, they perform community service, those kinds of things. It mm. doesn't take away their membership, but they're you know, BCR'd or banished for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but any appeals or any concerns um, that First Nation members have, they go 
you know, straight to the federal courts here. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes they win and sometimes they don't. But um, where do where can tribal members go to appeal a decision? Is it just the tribal courts themselves? Are they the only ones with jurisdiction to hear these cases? Well, this is one of the major problems with individuals who are facing banishment or or disenrollment because there aren't a whole lot of venues available to them. Uh, about of the 573 fairly recognized tribal nations in the U.S., only about 330 of them have tribal courts. Um, and, oh. of course, and of course, state courts aren't an option, of course, and federal courts um, have made it really difficult um, because of the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968 to bring cases before them. Um, and so, and, and those, for the tribes that do have court systems, since many of those courts were created by the legislative branch of the tribe, typically a tribal council, sometimes the tribal council will not authorize a tribal court to hear cases involving disenrollment or banishment. So that further reduces the number of venues for um, individuals facing disenrollment or banishment to contest what's happened to them. Um, so even if they there is a court system, and if they if, even if they are able to take their case to the tribal court, and we talk about a number of court decisions, uh, tribal court decisions in the book, we've got a chapter that focuses on a number of those decisions. And some tribal courts have rendered very powerful, very erudite decisions affirming tribal citizenship and reminding tribal government officials that they don't have the power to denationalize someone who's a bona fide member. But more often, there are far more cases in which tribal courts will simply defer to the political branches and say that's a political decision, that they don't have the judicial uh, authority to intervene. And so that leaves that individual, you know, without an option. They then try to take it to a federal court that because of the Indian Civil Rights Act and the Santa Clara versus Martinez decision of 19. 78, um, in which the Supreme Court said that a tribal government is, in fact, the final arbiter of membership decisions, and federal courts are not a place where an individual can challenge uh, what's happened to them unless they are physically detained or physically, you know, in a tribal jail facility. And so the very act that Congress created to provide a remedy for tribal members to contest violations of their civil and human rights uh, has not provided much of any kind of protection uh, in terms of due process for individuals facing disenrollment or banishment. So that really leaves tribal members without any recourse whatsoever. Uh, and so it's very a very difficult um, situation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. I know there have been situations here in Canada where um, individuals have been denied federal recognition as Indians, but also First Nation-based recognition as members on, you know, what people would consider prohibited, you know, human rights grounds, like uh, on the basis of sex, for example. Mm -hmm. And when they've exhausted or attempted every resolution possible, um, some of our women have gone to the United Nations Human Rights Commission, and I, mm -hmm. albeit it's, it's at the international level and there's no enforcement mechanism. Right. Um, they've always won their cases, always. Mm -hmm. And it's 
had a political impact in the sense of forcing the federal government to, you know, stop the sex discrimination or address membership issues. And I'm just wondering, has are you aware of anyone in the U.S. that has taken that route, or would that route have any impact at all in the in the legal and political context in the U.S.? Well, I know there have been a number of individuals that have attempted to use the Declaration of Indigenous Peoples' Rights on DRIP to challenge uh, their disenrollment. In fact, when James Anaya was the special rapporteur for the United Nations, um, he held a hearing um, in Tucson that I attended um, in which there were a number of disenrollees uh, or individuals facing disenrollment or who had been banished there to challenge and to testify that they needed a, a mechanism, they needed a way uh, to fight back against what had happened to them by their federal, by their tribal government, and they were not, they were letting Anaya know that um, the federal courts were not uh, a place where they could go. They had tried tribal courts, they exhausted their opportunities there, um, and so he heard them out, and he took the evidence, and he wrote a report, but again, with, as, we both, as we both know, since UNDRIP is not an internationally binding treaty, and even though the Obama administration signed on to it, it really has not yet been formally incorporated by many tribal governments, much less the federal government, in terms of providing an actual um, venue for individuals to contest what's happened to them. Yeah, that's that's the same here. I mean, and and you're well aware that you know the four countries: Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the U.S. actually voted against UNDRIP. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, Canada has since done a you know, political about face saying they support it, but they support it only in so far as it's consistent with Canada's constitution, mm -hmm. which in effect doesn't really change a whole lot here because right. that's that's kind of the problem. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, in terms of you know disenrollment, uh, there's always drivers or motives behind why you would want to prevent someone from being a member or to disenroll them or, you know, dismember them already. What do you think are the main drivers? Is it is it just in gaming tribes or is it in other situations as well? That's that's the thing. It's very complicated because when I finally decided to, to go ahead and write up, write up the book because I've been writing articles and op-eds about this, like I said, dating back to 1996. Um, and my initial sense uh, was that it was largely driven by gaming revenue. And certainly gaming is a dominant factor, particularly in California. Uh, what we have is we gather data that at least uh, 80 Native nations in the United States have or are engaged in dismemberment policies, whether it's banishment or disenrollment or a combination of the two. Uh, and that's about 50% of, of, our, of our Native communities. But in terms of the reasons Tribal government officials will lay out sort of a, they have a laundry list of reasons that they can draw from when they have targeted an individual or family or a group of families. And they frequently cite failure to prove lineal descent, the whole blood quantum issue that we talked about in Laguna. Mm -hmm. They talk about the individual member engaged in fraud, and that's how they became a member. And so we're kicking it out because of fraud. Or they claim that there was some error 
some documentary error, and so they were wrongly enrolled to begin with. Sometimes they claim that an individual is duly enrolled, that is enrolled in more than one tribe, and they say our nation does not allow or does not recognize dual membership. Um, and sometimes they claim the individual has failed to maintain contact with the tribe. Uh, a number of Alaska Native villages, and interestingly enough, my own nation, the Lumbee, declared that you've been away for more than uh, two years or so, you can be terminated for simple failure to maintain contact as they define contact. And, and so those are some of the main reasons that tribal government officials use. But Native peoples know that gaming is certainly a major factor um, of, the, of the tribes that operate and, and do per capita payments. And we know that at least 130 tribes do per capita payments. I wasn't able to get the BIA to tell me the current number. They said they stopped giving out that information a few years ago. Um, but we have strong uh, data in the book that identifies a number of tribes in California uh, where people went on record and acknowledged that if we cast out 20, these 25 members of the tribe, it's going to save the tribe this much money and it's going to increase our per capita monthly or annual checks by this amount of money. So we know that gaming revenue is one major factor. Um, racism is another factor that tribal governments don't like to talk about, but tribal individuals who face dismemberment know that racism factors in. In the situation with the Nooksack that Gabe Galanda is very familiar with, uh, the many, a number of the 303 uh, Nooksack facing uh, disenrollment um, have Filipino ancestry. And so that was viewed as a negative. Um, and so that was one rationale that they were, that, they, that the government used to kick them out. In situation in Oklahoma with the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, the African-American freedmen who gained citizenship in 1866 under a treaty were terminated in part, in large part, I think, because of their African ancestry. And of course, the tribal government said it had nothing to do with race. It was about citizenship. And yet the, the federal court who finally forced them to overturn that declared quite clearly, quite graphically, that racism was a clear uh, and major factor there. We know that corruption, political corruption, is another rationale that tribal government officials would never admit to, but individuals facing disenrollment know that there are a number of corrupt individuals. And when you have someone on the outside raising questions, causing dissent, dissenting about the direction that the tribe is going, they will sometimes be told, you're talking too much, you're raising you know, flags that we don't want to have raised, and so we're going to have you uh, kicked out. Uh, cultural conflicts as well, um, and, and frequently geographic uh, disputes in the situation of the Grand Ron in Oregon, uh, the individuals, the 86 individuals who were facing disenrollment or who had been disenrolled were in part were kicked out because the tribal government said they lived in an urban area and were no longer, you know, geographically close enough to the center of the nation. So it's a combination of reasons, uh, greed, racism, power plays, uh, treason, and sometimes just personal vendettas. As we know, in any country, politics is always personal. Uh, and in some cases, 
individuals certainly simply just don't like another family. Sometimes this animosity can be traced back multiple generations. And that was also a factor in what happened in Nooksack. In Nooksack, it wasn't about gaming re revenue at all. It was about personal vendettas, and it was about one one family, uh, uh, one family member, one family nations, you know, not being liked by the tribal chairman. Um, and so it's a combination of these two diff very different set of factors, or any combination of things that the tribal government can trot out when they decide they want to cast out an individual. And the thing with the tribal government is they have the power to manipulate these, to create new reasons on the fly. If one doesn't work, they just create another reason to kick out an individual. And we saw that in a number of cases, a number of individuals that we interviewed as, as part of the book. Um, they said they would beat the documentary criteria that the tribe said they had not met originally. And then the tribe would simply come up with another reason that they then laid on the person facing disenrollment. So they manipulate um, the facts they manipulate uh, the historical events. They manipulate uh, the data. Uh, when they want somebody out, they can make it happen. And, and the way the law is structured right now, the small lease have very few places to turn to contest what's happened to them. It's, it sounds so unbelievable, but everything you're saying sounds exactly like colonization like if you look at all of the colonial governments and settlers that came you know what was the reason for them wanting to institute blood quantum or having extinction dates it was to get our land and our resources and keep the wealth for themselves have political power and that seems like it's been very much incorporated in some of our first nations or tribal governments because right. i know in in canada we have some you know really famous examples of very rich and powerful first nations with very small membership because they limited membership to their family mm -hmm. so that that one family would be the only one that got say oil revenues for example or oil royalties or uh, and all of the power would be there and anyone who challenged them could actually lose their membership. Right. And, you know, I th I know a lot of people, you know, don't understand all of the, the intricacies or how this has all come about through, you know, colonization. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how does this impact the individuals who are dismembered? Right. Like, how does that change their lives to go yeah. from being a member and all that is associated with that to being dismembered? Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 the devastation is, is absolutely crippling to the individuals who go through a dismemberment process. Um, and, and so that was one of the questions that we asked uh, the 25 people or so that we interviewed for the book. Um, and, you know, frequently, you know, we hear that, well, if, I'm if an individual is disrolled, they lose their health care benefits, they lose educational scholarship opportunities, they lose their housing sometimes, or they may lose other material or tangible benefits. And all those were certainly understood by everybody, and they sometimes mentioned them. But what they all emphasize uniformly is that there was a psychic trauma that had been inflicted upon them when they were being told by sometimes by their own relative through kinship 
that they were no longer a citizen or a member or a participant or clan member of that nation. To be told that you are no longer who you always know, knew you were, it's just absolutely traumatic um, and, on, and on a level that I can't begin to comprehend. Uh, and yet that's what was their greatest um, loss that they all expressed on the ones that were facing dismemberment. To be told not only that you no longer belong, but you, that you no longer are who you once thought you were. Um, and so that's particularly tragic. And so that, in fact, when you were describing how the colonizer did and continues to do their thing, uh, here's a little statement that I have um, in the book that directly ties with that, where I said, the fact that an increasing number of native elites are now engaging in precisely the kind of forced removals and political terminations that many of their own ancestors experienced at the hands of federal colonial lawmakers is a tragic reminder that colonized peoples sometimes become exquisite purveyors of the very policies they once endured, all while maintaining the naive belief that somehow their actions are different than those that were heaped upon their ancestors. So you're exactly right. We are now doing to ourselves what the federal government historically and continues to do in certain respects. And I find that absolutely abysmal. But the sad part is that we, at least five tribes, have taken it to an entirely different level where they have gone back and disenrolled deceased members of the tribe so they could then have the legal authority to disenroll the descendants of those deceased individuals. Uh, and my wife and I wrote a column about that, and we put that in the book. And the term that is being used is posthumous disenrollment. That's, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just, I'm just sitting, shaking my head in disbelief. What? Right. Disenroll a deceased person? Disenroll the dead, exactly. The Saginaw Chippewa have done it. Um, uh, the um, Shakopee Midwakerton uh, Lakota, Lakota community in Minnesota has done it. And at least uh, a couple of other tribes have also done it. Uh, in one case involving uh, uh, the, the Reading Rancheria uh, in California, uh, and we, we interviewed uh, Carla and Mark Maslin, they were told by the tribal government that if they would disinter their grand, her grandmother and her great-grandmother, do a DNA test, uh, that they would then, uh, if they could prove direct descent via DNA testing, that they would be uh, allowed to get re-enrolled in the tribe and so they they didn't want to do it but they felt that they had to do it and so they did that they had their carla had her grandmother and great-grandmother disinterred they did dna testing the testing came back that showed conclusively that she and her family were direct descendants of these two individuals and yet the tribe said that still didn't matter they were still not going to be re-enrolled so we're doing posthumous uh, disenrollment. We're using DNA, which is a, a, a pseudo-scientific, you know, mm -hmm. uh, means of uh, determining blood quantum, crazily enough. Uh, and we're using mechanisms that were always used against us to now do serious 
self-decimation to our own peoples. Uh, and I just find that absolutely, absolutely horrendous. It, it is. I mean, you, you think about all of the like crazy, wacky, debunked pseudoscience that the colonizers used, you know, eugenics about, you know, so-called cleansing undesired races and phrenology, you know, where you could literally tell if someone was native by their hair or their teeth. I mean, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, people will look and say, oh, well, that was so crazy. That's in the past, but it's just changed, you know? Yeah. So now it's all about blood or all, it's now all about DNA and they just change the way in which they do the same thing right and you know there's a real to me it seems like there's a real politics around blood quantum and you know gabe and i had a little conversation when he was on about you know trying our very hardest to educate you know whether it be first nations or tribal governments or um you know the grassroots people about the dangers of things like disenrollment and blood quantum and you know limiting the numbers of your uh you know, your tribal community or First Nation, because ultimately it, it will have, in the beginning, individual impact. So you're devastating and traumatizing um, individuals. But ultimately, if you keep disenrolling or pre preventing new people from being enrolled for the sake of, say, per capita, ultimately you're creating an extinction date for your government sometime in the future. Right. Exactly. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm thinking, it, do they just not see this or is it really just all about what's in the moment? What benefits me or us or my family right now in the moment? Because um, certainly there is no law that would allow you to plot the extinction of your own nation. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that was one of the questions that we opened up the book with, um, uh, is we wrote, what does it mean that the United States, a very large, heterogeneous, secular state, has in place laws and policies that protect its citizens' rights far more comprehensively than Native nations, which are much smaller, more homogeneous, and ostensibly kin-based communities? Um, because historically, as we were talking earlier, we were all related in a Native community. We all knew who we were. We knew how we were related to, to one another, ancestrally, culturally, psychologically, territorially. And, and so I would have never believed that I would have the power to declare that another Lumbee was no longer a Lumbee. That would not be a thought that was ever entered into my mind. And yet we have tribal government officials in at least 80 tribes now doing this and doing it with a plum and doing it thinking that something is a power that they should be able to wield whenever they choose. So we really have gone astray from those traditional core values that once distinguish us as responsible, reciprocal, related uh, nation communities. And until and unless we find some way to restore uh, that sense of relatedness, I, I, I worry uh, about the future of, of many of our, our communities. Well, and, and here's the thing. I mean, I think you said it was about 15% of mm -hmm. um, the tribes use 
uh, disenrollment or dismemberment. And mm -hmm. we only have a handful left in Canada that directly use blood quantum mm -hmm. or, you know, and that's, you know, meant to specifically get rid of people. And, you know, I think about, you know, what about the other 85%? What about the hundreds of other First Nations who are using a multitude of alternatives mm -hmm. to determine both, you know, future membership or, or ongoing? And uh, I mean, surely there must be alternatives mm -hmm. to blood quantum mm -hmm. or disinterring your ancestors to prove a DNA match. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, and that's that's the sad part about it. And I know at one point, um, you know, if fifty percent of our nations are doing it down here, that means that the balance aren't doing it. And so yeah. I, I I interviewed a number of, of tribal uh, members and, and and some tribal officials to ask if you have the power to be tribalized, to be nationalized, why aren't you doing it? Others are doing it, you know, and the tribes that aren't doing it, which is fortunately the vast majority of our nations, you know, they emphasize, again, uh, certain philosophical concepts like in Navajo, which is by far the largest native nation in the United States with over 300,000 members. They've never disenrolled an individual, to my knowledge. And so when I interviewed several Navajos about that, I said, why hasn't the Navajo Nation? Because you have lots of internal conflicts and problems. And they said, well, we have a a con two concepts that link us, no matter who we are or where we live, as the net citizens. And they talk about the concept of eh and hojo. And those two concepts, which are all about harmony and balance and recognition and respect, link all Navajos, whether you're an assimilated Navajo who belongs to the Mormon church, or whether you're traditional Navajo practices, Yebiche ceremonies, uh, or whether you're a Native American church Navajo. But they all understand that beneath the skin, beneath the various institutions that we may belong to, we are all related by something much more deeper than that. And I think those tribes that still have those kind of values and philosophical principles in place are the ones that don't engage in such practices. Um, and so, you know, I encourage my own tribe, the Lundi, which has been involved in a number of disenrollments for absolutely insane reasons, including failure to maintain contact. I gave a talk there last summer in which I implored them to revisit their enrollment criteria and to go back and remember how they historically defined who was a Lundi and what made a Lundi a Lundi. And it was about sharing those values and about sharing a, a relationship with a particular place and about having understandings about certain language. Uh, and I believe that every Native community still possesses some of those elements that can be reformulated to guide us into the future. Um, because if we don't do that, we're, continue to, we're going to continue to be fair game. And in this Trump America now, which is about demonizing race, demonizing, you know, um, immigrants demonizing people who don't look like uh, Donald Trump and Dick Cheney. We're going to continue to do things that are harmful to our very existence. And and there's so many so many good examples. It's it's sad that the smaller number, um, you know, just don't look around to their brothers and sisters. You know, I when I did my doctoral research for my book Beyond Blood, 
I couldn't find a single First Nation in Canada whose traditions uh, had any kind of law that said anything about blood quantum, that said, you know, anything about being able to just remove someone because you don't like them, that there, it just wasn't even a concept that was in anyone's mind right. that you could, for any reason, political reasons, power, wealth, or anything, just say, yep, we're just going to, you know, kick this person out as a member um, or they, or anything around blood or, you know, mixed answers. I mean, that's clearly a colonizer's concept that has right. no origins in our communities. And, you know, there's, there's still some existing politics around it. And I, you know, I wanted to ask you about it if, if you didn't mind talking about it, because we're all in this business of trying to educate, we're trying to educate, um, you know, Native peoples all over the country, governments and everyone else to, you know, to really tell them the harms of what they're doing, how it, you know, originates in colonization, how there's so many better alternatives that are more aligned with our traditional laws and values and beliefs. But I notice, you know, and I don't know all the players in the United States, but I did notice I, I had an odd experience of, of meeting some people who actually are promoting blood quantum mm -hmm. and their form of education is actually trying to tell tribes to use blood quantum and um, some kind of auditing of their roles to, to get rid of people. And I'm wondering how big of a factor do you think it is that there's almost like an, a counter education going on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And this is where I think DNA testing uh, and how popular and how quickly that's been embraced by many people is only going to further fuel that thing. Um, but that's where I think everybody should read Kim Paul Bear's book uh, on, on DNA. And she called, she shows, you know, uh, the, the flaws and uh, how wrong uh, a reliance on DNA is for all mm -hmm. sorts of reasons. Because historically, as you said, it wasn't about blood per se. It was about genealogy. Mm -hmm. You knew who your relatives were, but those mm -hmm. relatives could be adoptees. They could be people that married into your family, or they could be direct relatives. It was all the same to the to the to the community. They didn't distinguish uh, blood degree because no one knew how to do that, and it didn't make any sense anyhow. Because blood, all blood is, I tell my students, is that it carries oxygen to our body. Uh, and that's all, it keeps us alive. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody needs blood. And so we're all related by blood, but it's, it's the values um, and it's the allegiance that we have to a particular community that really distinguishes us uh, as, as, as members or citizens of a particular community. Uh, who is your first allegiance to in mind is to the Lumbee people, to the Lumbee mm -hmm. community and to the Lumbee lands. Um, and, and that's not related to, to blood. That's related to those broader concepts and broader ideas that really distinguish every tribal uh, citizen, no matter where they live. Um, and, and But I, I really think it's a dark hole that a number of tribes are moving down that are adopting DNA testing to determine whether somebody can be a member of a tribe or to disenroll a member. Because that's just a modern high-tech form of blood quantum that is not uh, going to reduce 
a community that's cohesive, a community that's strong, a community that is uh, centered. Uh, and if we don't move away from that as quickly as we can, um, uh, I don't know what the future holds for us. Well, and it's and it's so true. If you if you look at just you know the whole organic kinship traditional basis of who we are, it's easy. It's simple. We know who our relatives are. We can reach out and touch our relatives. It feels good. It has history. You know, regardless of where you live or like, you know, with the Navajo, regardless of what kind of Navajo you are, the the underlying part is that you're still Navajo versus, you know, the really violent and invasive form of things like blood quantum and DNA where it's, you know, about blood testing and dissecting and assigning values to things that have nothing to do with kinship. I mean, you can literally adopt a child from another tribe and, you know, because that child doesn't have any parents and say, okay, this is now my kin. And that's, that's easy. Now that child would never pass a DNA test, right? but they could still be raised as a Navajo person and learn the Navajo ways and, and be part of that community as kin. And so it, it doesn't even feel right. It's, right. it's very, um, it, it's violent and invasive. And, you know, I, I think about what does it mean ultimately? I mean, ultimately, if we continue to exclude our people and, and, and have more and more and more and more exclusions, be it, you know, um, disenrollments or the prevention of enrollment to begin with of, of new babies that are born, we won't, we won't have a government in the future. I mean, isn't that ultimately the end result? Absolutely. It certainly is. It certainly is. So it just, it, it absolutely makes, makes no sense to me. And, and what I really, really like about your book is how it reflects, you know, the thoughts and feelings of people in Indian country. It's, it's an awesome combination of, you know, tons and tons of research about court cases, um, about the history, which is really, really important, but also, you know, what what it all means. This isn't just an academic exercise or a legal exercise. It has real world, real people impacts. And, you know, colonization has traumatized us all enough. And, you know, this we're in the epic decolonization process, but it's pretty hard to advance decolonization if we continue with colonial attitudes or colonial laws or, I don't know, a colonial poison or toxin mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. talk about excluding people. And, and you know, I, I'm wondering if you have any kind of last thoughts on, you know, what do you tell tribal governments or, you know, native organizations or grassroots member when you go out and speaking like what's your vision for the future for this like what would you like to see happen well i just i just try to remind um the communities that i speak to i just say look back at the way your ancestors related to one another when there were disputes, when there were conflicts, when there were altercations, which there always are going to be in any human community, well, no, no native, no human community anywhere is idyllic. There are always going to be conflicts. But we had mechanisms in place. We had ceremonies in place. We engaged in peacemaking, in mediation, in restitution, in compensation. We rarely, and we never said, 
you no longer belong because you're making a mistake about this or about that, or you've committed some wrong, and we're no, we tell you now that you no longer exist. Because that's not what you do to a relative. You love your relatives, and you, you try to find ways to amend things in such a way so that harmony and balance can be restored. Um, and so I say that every one of our communities had these kind of mechanisms in place, uh, and we can, and it wouldn't be difficult to resuscitate them or to create new ones that reflect who our communities and our people are today. Um, and it's, it, it, the onus is on us to do that because we can't look to any outside entity for guidance on how to do that. That memory that we have is still there and it's still viable uh, and it can certainly be tapped into. And so we're beginning to see some evidence of this. And so in the, in the latter part of the book, we talk about some of the ideas and suggestions or reform that some tribes are engaging in um, amending constitutions so that the tribal government will declare in constitutional language that it will never forcibly terminate the rights of a citizen uh, who's a bona fide citizen. And a number of tribes are beginning to amend the constitutions to incorporate that kind of language. Uh, some tribes are talking about forming a broader intertribal um, appellate body so that if your own tribal court um, is too closely connected to the political powers that be, they can take it to this intertribal court so that you have at least a semblance of fairness and justice. Because the federal courts won't hear your case by and large. And if your own tribal court doesn't, doesn't work for you, you have this intertribal body available. Um, there needs to be amendments to the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968 to provide clearer instructions on how individuals whose human rights and civil rights have been violated to challenge that. Because America, most American Indians, uh, with the exception of some Haudenosaunee people, identify and accept that they are also citizens of the United States. The vast majority, I would say. So why shouldn't they be allowed to use the federal courts if they need to, if they want to? That should be their right if they want to exercise that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and of course, the, the United Nations, uh, the declaration um, is, is also something that we, we need to keep pushing for and try to get more tribal governments to also embrace the tenets of that important protocol uh, and not just leave it to, to speeches, but actually find a way to incorporate it into their statutory uh, uh, and, and legal system and governing system. Um, I don't know if many tribes that have formally done that. Why haven't they? Why haven't we done that? We should do that. Um, just like New Zealand has done that and certain other, a handful of other states have also done that. So there are ways and things that we could do uh, to address this, but first and foremost, I always encourage tribes to revisit, to resuscitate, to recreate um, those historic mechanisms that worked pretty darn well uh, when we had problems, when we had citizens who violated community norms, or when we had um, individuals who you became corrupt. We had ways of dealing with those individuals that didn't require us to go beyond our borders. Um, and I think we, it, it, behoove, it would behoove us to find ways to uh, rediscover uh, those mechanisms. 
Well, thank you so much for actually ending this on some, some really powerful messages, because I think so many of us need to hear that. And, you know, I'm trying to get the word out as much as I can on all different forums, because because we can't all be, you know, in the same community at the same time. But mm -hmm. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge in all of these ways. I mean, I'm very grateful that to have been put in, in the path of community-based work where I got to meet you and uh, listen to you and then go and do research and read your book and some of your publications. I mean, I really want to lift you up and acknowledge your widespread public education efforts in Indian country. I mean, it's clear what what you're trying to do is really protect our nations and our future generations. And and I, you know, I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you very much, Pam. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, I, I hope I can get you back on the show again to talk more about this issue. I hope we get to do more community-based work because honestly, this is such an important issue um, and, it's, and it really is important for all of us. And I want to thank everybody out there for tuning into my show. I hope you enjoyed listening to this just amazing discussion with David Wilkins. And what I'll do for everyone is I'll post a link to his book that he co-wrote with Shelley Wilkins in the description box so that you can read more about tribal disenrollment. And if you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. Make sure to leave me your show ideas in the comment section. And I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, but I'm also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um, you can follow me on Instagram as Pam underscore Palmeter as I talk more about warrior living and my videos on YouTube where I tackle some of these really difficult political and legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. And for those who want to know more, there's lots to learn. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.